if a fourth grader couldn't understand it and carry out the instructions, it's probably not right. The ambulance patients, frankly, you don't need to be nice to them. They have no other choice. A mediocre doctor needs a great chart. A great doctor deserves a great chart. Hello, boys and girls. Rick Picotta, Greg Henry here for another issue of Risk Management Monthly. Greg, are you there, my friend? I am. I am in lovely Ann Arbor, Michigan, where a touch of fall has come to Ann Arbor, and the frost is on my pumpkins. So what can I tell you? Uh, that's good, Greg. Uh, right here, it's uh, 76, and it's a fabulous day in Southern California. And through the magic of Skype, it's like you and I are just talking across the table. It certainly is. Hey, listen, um, before we get started, I want to do a little teeny-weeny commercial. Um, we are having, uh, Greg, I know that you'll, you'll have a hard time believing this, but a, a, a marketing special where we're doing Risk Management Monthly and our sister publication, ED Leadership Monthly. And those of you who are listening are obviously subscribers to Risk Management Monthly, unless you've uh, barred this from a subscriber and are listening illicitly. But in any case, you will get, should you choose to, $100 off the price of ED Leadership, which means instead of, uh, if you want to get a disc a month, instead of uh, $245, it's $145. And if you want to get the internet-only version, it's like $95, which is, you know, like not even worth talking about. So this Rick. is a... Limited time offer. Uh, we're going to be sending this to all of the ED directors in the next couple of days. But I just want to give you a little heads up there. But we're not done yet. <laughs> You're also going to get the Ginsu knives. Yes, the this Ginsu knives a, will be coming. Yes, sir. You and Ron Popeil, Rick. I mean, it's unbelievable the depths you'll sink to in marketing. <laughs> but uh, I love it. Uh, get out there. You can't afford not to take these honest to goodness that's the, that is the absolute truth it's hard for me to conceive of a director of an emergency department who doesn't think it's a reasonable th we will that we will turn their emergency department around in terms of great ideas in no time flat but in any case enough is enough the other thing is i wanted to let you know you know but the dates locations and topics for the 2012 emergency medical abstracts courses are out there and uh, you'll be getting a brochure shortly you can go to our website ccme.org and start planning your winter cme holiday enough of the commercial greg yes i think i think we've uh, spent our wad there rick um and again for those of you who want the ginsu knife deal please let us know uh i i have to make a comment about today's uh risk management monthly because uh, obviously we have different topics in different months but i would say that what we're going to do today rick is one of those issues that you're going to want each of your new doctors coming on board to listen to this one. If there's one in the last six months, you want to give it to them, have them listen to it, and by God, follow it. It's this one, because we're going to be talking about generic risk management documentation pearls. Right. Because this, in the, this, this was, is big. This was, uh, this was a request from one of our listeners about mm, three months ago and we've just never been able to kind of get it together you and i basically came up together with a list of 20 things 
generically related to documentation. And I, I would extend this, Greg. I, I don't think this, this is just for the new doctors. I think the old doctors ought to listen to this because I believe that if you do the things that are listed in, that we're going to talk about, you will become a star in your department. Right. I, I agree with that. This is the difference between being the A team and the B team. Uh, and how did we get this list? Well, having spent uh, since 1976 uh, time looking at over 2,000 emergency malpractice cases, this is the kind of stuff we've gleaned from the charts. When I talk to the other people around the country doing these major uh, amounts of cases, there's no question that we see the same mistakes made over and over again. And remember this, when a lawyer decides to sue you, he doesn't subpoena you. He only subpoenas one thing to decide if they want to take the case. That's the chart. And a, there's nothing that stops malpractice actions like a great chart. A mediocre doctor needs a great chart. A great doctor deserves a great chart. Oh, what a classic. What a classic. <laughs> so let's start out here. And here it is. We're going to go right through 1 to 20 in no particular order. But if you're not doing these things, ask yourself, why aren't we doing these things? Well, actually, the I think we are going to do it in some kind of order, kind of like as a patient would come in and as they leave kind of thing. So... Let us begin, doctor. Let, I think you've got number one. I have number one, and this is one which people overlook all the time. Number one, formally acknowledge reading the nursing triage note, the, nurse, the first nursing notes, and I know that there are places that do this with a checkbox. That's okay, but it's even better if you make a specific notation that said, nursing note reviewed. Uh, you've looked at their vital signs, you've looked at the initial history, you looked at whatever they found, it shows that you took the time and effort to read what the nurses were doing, and I promise you, we've got stacks of cases where the doctor's history and the nurse's history do not agree. Yeah, I think what we're talking about here is, what we're talking about is creating a good chart, but we're also talking about good processes that will keep you out of trouble. And I think that, you know, when I look at a medical record for review, the first thing I look at is what the nurse said in the triage note, because um, that those complaints that are listed there need to be addressed by the doctor. And sometimes, you know, that they're not in sync whatsoever. Well, I think that patients honestly don't know what they've told to which person. And they may say, well, I gave that part of the history to the nurses. Now I'll give some other part to the doc. And you're right. Frequently, they do not line up. And we don't know exactly what's going on. The one rule of charting is the chart, no matter who puts something on it, should be telling one story. That is, if you put your hand over the diagnosis line, don't even see that, you ought to be able to read the, read the notes and pretty much come to the same conclusion about the diagnosis. Yes, the idea here is that the charting needs to be internally consistent. There can't be, you know, things that don't uh, agree. And that means that everybody who writes, the other person, particularly the doctor who's going to be the one at most risk, needs to know what they're saying. And uh, hopefully you will address 
uh, any discrepancies that you believe that are in the record so that you don't have to do it on the de- uh, at the deposition. And caution. <laughs> I've just finished doing a hospital, reviewing a hospital which will remain nameless. They asked me to come in uh, and, and do an outside review on risk uh, assessment. One of the first things mentioned to me was with the new electronic record, the doctors had trouble. It was a big effort to find and read the nurse's notes because of the way they were kept. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a giant step backwards. If it's hard to read the note, you won't do it. Why? Because humans follow the course of least resistance. If it's right in front of you and you have to look at it, you will. If it's work, you won't. And I actually, (laughs) one of the first things one of the docs pointed out is, well, maybe the nurses said that, but it's too much trouble to go get it. I thought, oh, my God, do I actually have to sit and listen to this? Because I'll tell you, if you repeat that phrase in court, it's your butt. Yeah, you know, um, I have seen the some of these electronic medical record nursing notes. They are pages and pages and pages of macro crap. Just I- crap. Um, and, 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 you know, this is a country that's become dominated by process over product, and we can't understand it. I don't need very much, but it's got to be fast and hot and now, because if it ain't there when I need it, it might as well be, not be there at all. You got it. So let's go, okay. on, to, let's go on to number two. Number two, number two, circle any abnormal vital signs and repeat if you think it clinically indicated. Uh, I noted that children's temperatures don't need to be necessarily repeated prior to discharge unless you're really concerned about them. You know, they're like 109 or something like that. But I I don't think it's necessary uh, to do 102 or 103 because um, and yet in some hospitals, I know for a fact that they are mandated to show that the temperature has gone down, which is an absolute total waste of time. There's no science to that, Rick. Zero science. There's nothing that says a kid at 103 degrees is any sicker than a kid at 101 degrees. The exception is the small infant who is hypothermic. Uh, There is some correlation there between hypothermia and the degree of illness of the child, but but a completely different question. And the other thing is those kids look sick. Mm Mm-hmm. So the idea here is um, the second part of a chart that I would look at after looking at the nurse's triage note is the vital signs. The vital signs, the vital, vetus, life, these are life signs. And the fact of the matter is, is that unfortunately, these are objective numbers. There's no interpretation required. The pulse is 130. That's what the pulse is. And the blood pressure is this or that. And I think that one of my concerns, frankly, is, and I've seen, and you've seen cases too, where people who have, uh, have elevated blood pressures, those blood pre- the number is 140 over 90. It is not negotiable. And the fact of the matter is, is that people have blood pressures that are outside the range, which are, are, are abnormal. These, these are not checked. Even if the person says, well, I'm, I'm 
a hypertensive and I'm on medication, it doesn't matter. If it's 160 over 100, somebody needs to know that and say, listen, you need to contact your doctor. Uh, you're not, you know, you, you might need some adjustment of your medicines. But the majority of the time, the blood pressure is taken as a total waste of time. It appears to be like a screening test. You come in with a sprained ankle. What the heck is the purpose of your blood pressure? No less your temperature. But, in a, but once it's measured, and it's outside the range of normal, you incur an obligation. Well, absolutely. The other thing is, someone's actual uh, respiratory rate is never actually taken. That study's been done. Uh, the nurses look and say, that, well, that's a 12, uh, or that's a 20. But uh, it's rare that it's actually taken for a minute. I promise you that. But the point is, if you're going to take a number, you have to do something with the number. It's like sending off a lab test. When a number comes back, which is abnormal, you have to have a plan of what you're going to do with it. Here's some, num some comments I don't like when they say, well, of course he was tachycardic at 150. He was in pain. You know, then when his pain goes away, just take his uh, pulse rate again and show that the pulse rate came down. I think that it is, it is one of those things, as you said, Rick, which is a yes or no kind of question uh, and, and I would invite every listener to this tape to do this. Go down to the department this month, pull your charts and see unanswered abnormal vital signs. I promise you they're there. I've never done a review in a hospital where I couldn't find them. Well, absolutely. I, I, we did a paper in the abstracts many, many, many years ago that said with respect to blood pressure, the higher the number is outside the range of normal, the less likely anybody was to do anything about it. Yes. <laughs> well, the other thing is, uh, as we've, we have several papers in the abstracts which talk about the fact that we always write off that elevated blood pressure in the department as, well, they're just hyper or nervous or it's white coat hypertension. One of the studies found that 50% of those people when they took their blood pressures later in the outside setting, still had hypertension. Uh, and so it wasn't just white coat and not just because they're in the emergency room. Some of these people do genuinely have hypertension. And if you take a 25 or 30-year-old and diagnose hypertension and, and treat it properly, you may actually have done a human being some good. Actually, the idea is that's probably the most important thing that you could have done for that person, no matter what the heck they were there in the emergency department. It was not nearly as important as recognizing that abnormal blood pressure and getting that person referred for a further, uh, uh, further assessment. The other thing yeah. is I, I did specifically not mention the respiratory rate since that is generally a fiction anyway. But when you have a machine that takes the blood pressure and you have a machine that takes the pulse, it's really very difficult to argue with those things. The other thing that you mentioned, Greg, I think is very important. People often attribute abnormal vital signs to pain, but there, it also works the other way around. We have a two or three papers in the, in the database that says, uh, if a person says they're in a lot of pain, and you validate that by expecting them to have an adrenergic outflow so that their pulse is high or their blood pressure is high, that is a fundamental mistake. There have been people with long bone fractures who have absolutely normal pulse. And, and so the idea is you cannot say, well, this guy's probably just a, a, a symptom magnifier because his pulse is 80. You cannot do that.
Yes, there's also an inversus response. There are people in pain who have bradycardia. So yeah. I, I think, yeah. So I, it, to, to say that you can look at the situation, take the pulse rate, and know whether they're in pain is an absolute crock. So I think we've kind of beat that into the ground. But I honestly, I think it's an extraordinarily important point, and I agree with you 100%. If you, even if you were to look at 25 charts, I guarantee you will find people who have blood pressure outside the range of normal, which is not repeated, and there's not a darn word on the aftercare instruction about that abnormality. Yeah, and most blood pressure does not need to be treated in the emergency department, but what it needs to be is noted, patient-informed, told to see their doctor because you're not going to start the treatment of most mild to moderate hypertension in the emergency department, nor should you. Absolutely. And the other thing here is, technically speaking, you have not diagnosed hypertension. Even if there are several abnormal readings, there's all kinds of rules about how hypertension is defined in terms of multiple reading. So what you've diagnosed is blood pressure outside the normal range, but you have not made the diagnosis of a disease called hypertension. Correct. Okay. Uh, uh, Tidbit, Pearl, number three. This is a difficult and a controversial one. Make sure you use a translator preferably qualified hospital translator, if there is any question about the ability of the patient to understand what's being said and clearly document document the translator's name. You want that person to be known. Now, frequently, uh, this cannot be done. Uh, We can't find certain translators, and a family member may need to be substituted. Although this isn't the best, it is better than nothing, and should be documented. Right, absolutely. And, um, you know, I've written in the past about the new Joint Commission requirement that hospitals, as of this past January, need to have what they call qualified translators. And these, by, by qualified, they're meaning that they have taken a test, they have been um, uh, approved by the hospital. This is not that you need a license, but you have to be quote unquote qualified. And the Joint Commission has given these hospitals the, 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 the word that we're going to start looking at this. And the earliest that you can get dinged on this is next January, and then it even may be beyond that. But I can tell you there's a big, big, big move uh, for hospitals to have qualified, quote-unquote, qualified translators in all of the disciplines. As a matter of fact, you know, this is going to be a boom for those companies who have translating services because... Um, there is reasonable evidence that patients who uh, have English as a second language uh, don't really do that well with regard to understanding uh, what we're telling them and follow-up care and those kinds of things. So um, the idea of using the patient's you know, seven-year-old daughter is going to be, uh, become more and more unacceptable. Well, I know it's unacceptable, but I want to make a few comments about this. The first one is, Rick, where the hell in in, in uh, Los Angeles would you ever find somebody who speaks Spanish? I have no idea. Of course, you could go out and get the guy who's cutting your lawn. I'm sure he could speak Spanish. No, no, he's a the, Japanese guy. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm sure he speaks <laughs> Spanish, though, just to get along. Uh, bottom line is this. Uh, because they're qualified as a translator doesn't mean they speak the same dialect as the patient you have. Uh, 
the, the country of India has 400 major languages and 4,000 dialects. That's why they communicate in English. But the, uh, to think that because somebody uh, is listed as a, uh, uh, a, an Indian translator, they can do everybody is not the case. So you need to establish they can actually understand each other. And I've actually had that situation where they've said to me, um, we don't actually speak quite the same language, and I'm not sure about certain words. Uh, and, and the one thing about a family member is they almost always speak the same dialect. Uh, and, and so you can get through some of that, the, the thicker questioning with those folks. But I thought there was a common language like, oh, yes, very good. I understand the procedure. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, Jerry Hoffman is not translating for you in the department. The other thing is, Next. From a, well, b- before we move on, from a risk management perspective, you have to be careful that you don't put yourself in a position where when things go wrong, the patient says, I didn't understand, and they talk in front of the jury, and it's and they're talking in tongues, and nobody can understand this person, and they're going to say, "Well, I can understand that." Yeah, this no, I, I agree with you, Rick. So that's a risk management issue, not just a you know a, a, a care related issue. So let's move on oh. to number four. If you see the patient quickly after their arrival, make sure you document the time to the initial counter. And I think that this, you know, everybody's more measuring door to, not provider time, door to doctor time. That's what it's about. And um, yes, that's a good service marker. But I also think that it's a good marker in terms of with regard to the care that you're providing. If somebody comes in with chest pain and you've seen them within X minutes of their arrival, that shows that you're on top of the, uh, uh, on, on the ball. If you see them an hour after their arrival, I certainly wouldn't, and I, you know, this may be, uh, this may be telling tales out of school, Greg, and you might slap my hand on this. But yeah, I, yeah. But listen, if if, uh, if I saw a person and it was really a long time after they arrived, I would make no attempt to, to document how late I was in that encounter. <laughs> now, that might not be exactly kosher, but I'm, I'm, I'm for documenting early arrivals, but certainly not, well, it took you an hour and a half to see the patient, doctor. Well, I have, I've actually had uh, people in court, uh, they have to say, well, Dr. So-and-so, uh, the, the type-in number here says they came in at 1045. You, you record seeing them at 1035, and it's nothing as good as having the doctor say, yes, I was in there seeing the patient before they were typed up. Yeah. That is so effective in court. Well, you know, we're talking about two things here, Greg. We're talking about making your doctor a real star, but I don't think there's anything that makes a better impression with a patient than a short door-to-doctor time. Yep. In fact, uh, whenever the nurses say, well, we're not done yet, I think it ought to be a true team. Uh, people come in by ambulance. I go in with the nurses, with the EMTs, and we'll ask questions, be working together. I don't think I should be waiting until they're all prepped if I'm concerned uh, to start uh, working on my patient. No, and I, I think that, that that's why we go into the room with ambulance patients. Well, I also agree. And I also think, however, that, you know, in terms of a service marker, seeing patients quickly is um, the 80% of our patients go home. The patients who are 
the, who go home are the discretionary patients. They don't have to go to your ER. They can go to some other ER. The ambulance patients, frankly, you don't need to be nice to them. They have no other choice. They're going to come to you. And, <laughs> you know. So the idea is, um, I think, across the board, the the idea of seeing these patients quickly is a is 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 terrific because we have such a crummy reputation of making patients wait, not respecting their time, uh, and always saying, "Well, can't you see we're busy?" And the waiting rooms are full of these unwashed masses, and it's it, it's that is not the way to do business. Yeah, I, you know, we, with the plaque that sits at the bottom of the Statue of Liberty, you know, send us your poor, your hungry, the Emma Lazarus poem probably ought to be on the front of our ERs as well. Uh, but the but the bottom line is uh, the soon as the patient sees the doc, they think care has started. And so lick and promise medicine when you have two or three patients that have brought in, I think is perfectly fine. And patients like it. And if you even stick the door in and say, hi, Dr. Henry, I'm going to be back with you in just a couple of minutes. They like that. I've never seen a patient not like that, that early hello approach. That is exactly, exactly right. We don't want to confuse physicians and say, well, we expect you to do the full history and the full physical within, you know, uh, X amount of minutes of their arrival. What you need to do within X amount of minutes of the arrival is stick your head in the door and say, hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so. Let's get you comfortable. I'm going to be back and see you in a minute or something to that effect. You have accomplished the goal. Well, the other thing is in experienced docs, I think I make about 90% of my diagnoses uh, in the first five seconds of eyeing a patient. I certainly know whether they're an extremist or not. Uh, this is particularly true of kids. I can walk in a room and I don't may not know what the kid has, but I know they're sick in about five seconds. Uh, and and just that kind of reprioritizing in my mind uh, helps me to, to keep a handle on the patients. Okay, let's move to number five, Greg. Five, to try and see every patient at least every 30 or 40 minutes while they're in the department and document a brief sort of time status note or keep it in your head so that when you dictate your note for that visit, it shows that you've made multiple entries uh, uh, and had done multiple checkups on your patients. As, as I've seen many times in court, the doctor will be a great job on the initial history and physical, and then there's nothing. We don't know what happened uh, until there's a line there at the bottom, patient discharge. Excellent history, excellent physical, but there's no sojourn through the department. How did they do? Feeling better, talked to their mother, met their family. Nothing has to be long, but it shows that you've had some further contact with the patient. Right. So here we're talking about two things. We're talking about doing it and then documenting it. Uh, you need right. to get credit for the doing it. And that is just a brief little note. Patient is feeling better, less pain, those, those things that you mentioned. Now, I acknowledge that some of these things are more difficult than others. And I don't want to hear yakking from doctors saying, well, you're not seeing eight patients an hour like I have to see kind of thing. Well, frankly, you shouldn't be seeing eight patients an hour. And, and patients will often say when there's a negative outcome, I never saw the doctor again. The doctor spent two minutes with me kind of thing. How many times have you heard that over and over and over and over? And you wouldn't tolerate it if you were a patient or your family members were a patient. And, um, and I must admit, 
that doctors get special care when they go into an emergency department and their family. But this is, should be expected of everybody. Just to, and the other thing I must admit, Greg, when I was the director for 25 years at our place, it was expected that our nurses would see everybody at least every 30 minutes. Hi, how are you? You feeling better? Can I get you a drink? Uh, you need a blanket? Uh, we're waiting for the test to come back. Just some kind of communication. A half hour is, can be a long time if you're just laying there. When you have nothing better to do than count the, the holes in the ceiling tile uh, to make sure they're the same on each one. Oh, and by the way, they are, having done that. Uh, uh, that, that does, time does pass slowly, uh, particularly if you're in pain. Who it really passes slowly on is the family that is sitting there at the bedside that's waiting to talk to the doc. Absolutely. And uh, those are the people. Those are the people who get upset. There are more complaint letters from families than patients. Well, that brings up the other point. Um, it's not a matter of necessarily documentation, but I think in terms of style points, uh, we ought to welcome the family to sit with the patient. That's exactly what you would would, would want to do if it's your mother, your wife, your daughter. You, the family should be there. And I see so many times an effort to shoo the family out, generally by the nurses, and that's just not a... It's not what they would want for themselves, and somehow they think that it's well. This is it's a matter of privacy for the other patients, or they make up some kind of you know excuses. Well, I know that happens, and the bottom line is, I think it's a risk management issue. I want family in with older patients because I'd like them to be there to watch so they're not crawling out of bed. We don't have enough personnel to assign somebody to grandma. We just can't do it. You got family members there. They're going to watch grandma. They'll let you know if there's a problem. Same way with kids. Uh, kids are scared. They want somebody they know. This is a frightening experience for those, those kids. And I think a parent holding the hand uh, during the repair of the laceration or the drawing of the blood or something is useful. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, some parents, you know, they start to kind of get a little green when the patient's being sutured, and you need to be attuned to that because you don't want to have two patients where you formerly had one, but most of the parents want to stay, and I, I think the idea of shooing them out is a mistake, it, especially yeah. if there's a problem with the wound, the wound gets infected, they, you never, they, they didn't get to see you wash it out really carefully and give through the show where you're squirting saline all over the room to show that everything's being clean kind of thing. Get betadine on their clothes. It's perfect. <laughs> then they right. know they've been cleaned. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. You, everything's selective. But uh, everything from your kid getting cut to doing CPR on a child, there is no study that doesn't say that parents didn't appreciate it and did better if they were given the option to be there. Right. Now, uh, and not that's important. I acknowledge that sometimes there are too many people. There are some ethnic groups who specializes in roofing and driveway repair who come Yes, I know them. with yep. <laughs> with, with a with a uh, you know 8 or 10 people come every time somebody comes and um Yeah. you there are limits obviously. So let's move well, on. But, yeah. Okay, you're next. 
Uh, let's see. Oh, this is, this is a quickie. Document that you have tried to be a good doctor. Early pain management. Document of comfort measures. Ice bags. Splints. Document that you've spoken with the family. The idea, frankly, is you are creating a self-serving chart. Now, you may not like to hear that, but that is what this is about. It's an internally consistent self-serving chart to defend your diagnosis and what you did during that visit. So I think that... If to you- Go ahead. No, if you look at the press Keeney uh, questions, one of them is, were they, were they solicitous? Were they helpful with regard to my pain? Did they pay attention to the pain? And that's why uh, we tell ourselves this lie. And I heard this for years in medical school. We don't want to mask the disease by treating the pain. Yeah, like I think in most... A broken, I think in most you cases, got a broken that's a, arm. That's a, we don't want to mask that, you know. Yeah, that, that's a bunch of crap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm absolutely. trying to think of the number of diseases we've masked by making the patient comfortable. And there's very good data to suggest you get a better history, better cooperation, better pictures in X-ray if they're not writhing in pain. Hello, Greg, help here. Greg, I'm recording this at Ricky's house. And Ricky, yeah. honest to God, Greg, I am looking out the out the the window, and there is a bear. Honest to goodness, a bear, probably no further than thirty feet from this window, a brown bear. Um, this area is noted for its wildlife, but honest to good, I'm looking at a wild bear. Well, invite him in. <laughs> let the parent come in, uh, and make sure that bear is not in pain. This is you so know. weird. Um, well. It, it, in fact, if you're into the Second Amendment, I'd get him a pistol and defend your your right uh, to uh, to arm bears. Go you know, ahead. My dog Cisco is here with uh, Ricky picking them up at the house. Cisco is looking at the bear and is going nuts. But anyway, let's move on. Yes, yes, let's before, do that before I get attacked by this thing. If you hear any screaming, you'll know that the bear didn't uh, honor the fact that we have a glass door here. Uh, but in any case, let's let's move on. Where uh, were we here? Number, I think number seven. Yes, sir, number seven. Indicate in the chart any abnormal labs and your interpretation of x-rays. Note that the radiologist interpretation is well, but you get extra points if you actually looked at the x-ray yourself. Shows that you actually cared. And I think if you say that, I looked at film or radiologist interpretation X, or we disagreed, or I discussed the film with radiology. Those are excellent phrases to have on the chart. Right. I believe that 99% of emergency physicians listening to this say, oh, come on, that's, that's a little over the top. But Greg, how many times, now that we have these PAC systems, you can get your um, helper one of the techs or, or your scribe or some, or your PA to pull up that film on the on that box and just invite the patient or the family member over and say, here's what we're talking about kind of thing. It, it, it's incredibly empowering for the patient to see that you really care about that x-ray and you've personally looked at it and now you're showing it to the patient. They love it. Rick, my, uh, my uh, oral surgeon, I had to have a little work done in a tooth. By God, he's got the x-ray, brings him right up in the room, right in front of the patient, shows him what he's talking about. And even if you're a lay person and don't know a crap about the films, you feel better because you've looked at it and you've seen your doctor look at it. 
Yeah. This is a win. This a winner all the way around showing patients their films. Yeah. Now I don't suggest that you show them the EKG or the SMA seventy five that you ordered, but you get a lot of credit for showing those X rays. And the smart doctor will make this a part of his practice or her practice. What we're talking about, Greg, is the fact is that you did this for twenty five years, and I did it for twenty five years at least. And we've seen yeah, lots of doctors. Yes. Yeah, we've seen lots of doctors. And this is how you make yourself to be a really, really, really valued doctor in your department, not only for, the, for you, risk management, the patient, and your director. They're going to love you. Yeah, the other thing I always do is if you've got a kid who's about five or six and you've got an abnormal, make a copy. Uh, and that's simple enough to do. Make them make them a uh, a little paper copy of this so they can take it home and show their friends. Kids love that stuff. Well, the other thing is is that we always were making copies for the you know the orthopedists uh, so that they don't have the hassle of having to contact the hospital, send the X-ray, those kinds of things. When you're sending out somebody who needs to get some uh, orthopedic follow. Number eight. Try to, try to avoid any unnecessary lab tests that will return after the patient leaves and which are largely tangential to the patient's reason for going. Hey, Doc, can you, while I'm here, we need to check my PSA. Doc, while I, I'm on uh, this Lipitor stuff, would you mind checking my cholesterol? That stuff is dangerous. First of all, <clears throat> there's, there's this issue of follow-up. but more and, and also, do you expect the insurance company to pay for a cholesterol at the hospital charge level, when you came in there with a sprained ankle kind of thing, who's supposed to pay for that? Well, I mean, this has gone on for years and years and years. People have been raping the company. But I'll tell you, whenever you order a test that you don't have control over, i.e. doesn't come back to you, ask this question, who's going to get that test? What I also think is worthwhile is somebody asks for the test, somebody else, another doctor or something, that gets printed on the chart. Right. Uh, because I want to know who's responsible for, for following up all this crap. And uh, believe me, non-follow-up of abnormal tests has been the, the, the basis of a lot of lawsuits. And uh, we may actually get into one of those today uh, later on in our cases. Okie dokie. Number, uh, let's, let's have you do number nine. Nine. If the medications you give are supposed to produce an effect within the time of the emergency department visit, chart the response. Patient notes pain improved, no further vomiting, or worse than that, patient not receiving benefit from pain medicine. It ought to be the yin and the yang. If you take an action... What was the equal and opposite reaction to that? Uh, I think Newton was right. For every action that you, you do, there ought to be a reaction from the patient. It's generally expected that the nurses, after giving a medication, will um, be expected to quantify the response to the medication, the pain medication usually, or the nausea and vomiting medication. They're not going to be able to quantify the response to the antibiotic. Well, we've killing 8 million bugs per, per second. Now, that, you can't do that. But I don't think it hurts at all for the physician to make an objective, dispassionate assessment of, is this patient feeling better? Because bottom line is, most patients who leave the emergency department should be feeling better than when they arrived. 
Oh, no question about that. Um, uh, Rick, do the next one. Start therapies in the emergency department if they are time critical. Don't count on the floor service getting these go uh, things going anytime soon. So we're talking about antibiotics, absolutely. And we're also talking about, there was a recent paper, Greg, that pointed out that the early initiation of anticoagulants in people who have PEs makes a difference. And they're even talking about, you know, in the emergency department, not uh, pissing around waiting for, well, we'll get the internist to do that. And I know that it may not make physiologic sense that starting heparin right away matters, but this study said it does. We always get these crazy comments like uh, there's an occasional internist who'll say, well, I want to be able to make the decision on my antibiotic. Good. Make it. Tell me. I'll, I'll start it now. But the problem is uh, we're in the department. We can get things going. And when you, when you send patients into the hospital, there's a strange phenomena. There's some place where the patients go where they're aged. It's like a patient cellar, like a wine cellar, where they age them for about five, six hours when nothing happens. I don't know where this place is. It's like I don't know where the place is in New York where all the cabs go when it rains. But there must be this huge garage where they all go when it rains. And then when the sun comes out, they all come out again. So my view of it is when you send them upstairs, if it's, it was going to happen in the first two or three hours upstairs, just do it downstairs. Because it doesn't make any other sense to me. Well, now we have all of these drugs that are given once or twice a day. And uh, they're given at the same time so that if you send a patient up to the floor and it's uh, 11 o'clock and the BID drugs are given at 10 in the morning and 10 at night, say, well, I got to wait 11 hours to the uh, next uh, dose of the BID drugs. You know, I, I, I don't think that that's, you know, that might be exaggerating a bit, but absolutely. I think that you should initiate these antibiotics and this pain medication and these anticoagulants in the emergency department. And we all agree yeah. with that. But we, sometimes it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, Eleven, specific names of people you speak to, uh, are these names are important. You did not call the ortho resident. You called a specific doctor, Dr. Smith, Dr. Jones, orthopedic resident. It is impossible in large centers to find out who you actually spoke to that night. And if you think I'm kidding, you ought to find out how many people like at, at, at USC, for example, how many medicine residents there are. If you think that you can actually identify, remember them two years later, I, I think that's impossible. So get the specific name. Now, let me tell you a problem that we encountered the first year I was at Bayer Hospital. One of the docs proposed at the executive committee that if we spoke to somebody on the phone, we didn't put their name down. That way, they were protected medically legally. Oh, yeah, right. I sure. Think, yeah, yeah. I think it's immoral. You know, there's, one, there's something about the truth. It's the truth. If I spoke to you, man up. Put your name down, fool. And, and uh, sit there in the, in the defense chair with me, that, or come in, or do what you want, but don't ever think that uh, somebody won't turn on you. If you spoke to somebody, put their name down uh, so that we know who we're going to go to if something bad goes wrong. There you go. Um, I, I, I couldn't agree more, and I think that 
uh, actively choosing not to put somebody's name on the chart is, um, I think it may even be an ethical issue, frankly, uh, above um, just a medical legal kind of issue. Uh, to, and I would think that a medical staff that says this is what you want you to do, I'd kick him in the shins if I could. Um, yeah. Moving on. If all else fails, call for help. Never carry a coffin by yourself. It is not a sign of weakness to seek input on a difficult case and a document to help received in the chart. Um, Greg, you and I have seen all kinds of cases where the allegation was that you did not ask for help. You did not consult a specialist when you should have. And as a result, look at the poor uh, Mr. So-and-so's outcome kind of thing. So the, this you should have a low threshold for seeking help, not a high threshold. This is not like you were an intern where the idea is you were supposed to be the wall and not, anybody, and le, and not let anybody get admitted to the hospital. This is just the opposite. This is, you're not supposed to be a wall. You're supposed to be seeking help and have a low threshold for doing it. Well, you know, but this is antithetical to the way we're trained in medical school and residencies. We get this, uh, be, you know, wooden ships, iron men, uh, be tough. And, uh, you know, and, and believe me, attendings send out this message to residents. Well, if you're weak and don't know much, then bother me. You know, make me see the patient. Otherwise, by this time, you should be able to do it by yourself. That's a bunch of crap. Number 13 is yours. Oh, make sure the chart indicates that in some way the patient is improved when being discharged. They should not feel the same way when they leave as when they came in, except perhaps, as you point out, Rick, that febrile babies can still be febrile. If you cannot check a box... And here's, here's Henry's suggestion as I fade into nothingness here as I age. There ought to be a box at the bottom of every chart. If you can't check a box that says the patient is improved, ambulatory, able to follow instructions, think about the situation again. If you couldn't check that box, would you let your brother go home or your mother go home? I don't know. But sometimes the big picture is missed here and people are discharged. I, I've told you about the, the nursing note that said a patient now can't move left arm helped into car. Uh, I, I mean, if the patient isn't, it, it doesn't really look like they're ambulatory and can function at home. Don't do it. Yeah, actually, we had a lawsuit at our hospital many years ago. A uh, fellow was involved in some kind of traumatic situation, whether it was a car accident or fall, I don't recall. But the patient was walked in or came in by ambulance, but was wheeled out. And it wasn't a matter of wheeling the patient out for his convenience or because uh, to help him out kind of thing. It was because the nurse noted that the patient was having difficulty walking. That was the first sign of this guy's spinal cord injury. And yet he was wheeled out, put in the car, and uh, as you can envision, there was not a very happy outcome here. Um, so I'm very concerned about people who need to be wheeled out for anything resembling, uh, well, uh, they're not walking so good, or they're kind of staggering, or they're whatever. Wheeling out should be just kind of like a courtesy. This dog is barking, uh, trying to find that bear, uh, Greg. Here, here, little Cisco. Here, hey Ricky, can you yeah. can you can you take out that dog, please? 
Anyway, where were we? Okay, yeah, I had the same note in my, in, in, as well. Wheelchair out, watch for people being wheeled out. Well, I, I actually had a case where young man, a motorcycle accident, told one of the nurses that he couldn't pee after the motorcycle accident. And so she was kind enough to stick a catheter in uh, and pull the catheter out. Uh, he was allowed to go home. And of course, he was doing what? Compressing his spinal cord. Uh, bottom line is uh, some young guy who can't pee uh, and a young guy who needs a catheter needs to have that complaint explained to the physician and somebody needs to examine him. Well, trauma, <laughs> trauma, can't pee. Eh, doesn't sound good to me. The other thing is, is that a nurse cannot insert a catheter without a physician's order. And if they do it preemptively, there needs to be an order in the chart, even if it's after the fact. That nurse was way out of line in uh, in doing that. Um, very aggressive <laughs> yeah. nursing, I must say. Yeah, by the way, the patient's attorney thought that too. And uh, this case was settled and not uh, taken to court. Uh, it, was, it was ugly. Let's All move right. on. Number 14. Yeah. Okay, do it. Do document any change of physicians in the case. Change of shift is a potentially dangerous time. In fact, the Joint Commission has got to burr up its butt about uh, pass-ons. And uh, we initiated at our hospital, um, you know, it, we didn't have it going on for years and years. It was something that we did probably in the last two years. It was required. Now, I don't know that the physicians always did it when I wasn't there, but it was required that a pass-on would take place in front of the patient the offgoing doctor would introduce the oncoming doctor to the patient and say, uh, we're waiting for the result of this or that. Dr. So-and-so is going to be taken over. I've advised him of what's going on, et cetera, et cetera. I think it is the most discourteous thing to not advise the patient that, uh, uh, to do this and say, and the next doctor walks in the room and say, oh, yeah, the other doctor's off duty. I'm taking over. What, what, are, you, what are you thinking about? Rick, families as well as patients hate that. Just go in and as you're doing rounds, I can't tell you the number of times we've walked around. And when I was forced to tell the story to the next doc, I said, Jesus, I've got this figured out in my head already. Uh, and I felt the belly and said, you know what? Yeah, that is probably appendicitis. I'm calling the surgeon. You don't have to take the case. Uh, it's amazing how we intellectually procrastinate. And as we, if we're forced to turn the case over and explain what we're doing, introduce them, a lot of times we can finish the situation up. I think there's a lot of good interchange there because the new doc says, now, wait a minute, what exactly do you expect me to do? What's the issue here? Because time won't solve that issue. Let's just get them admitted. Let's do this. Let's do that. I think a lot of good stuff gets cleaned up at the change of shift, uh, but it should be explicit, not implicit. And yeah, you I always agree. Yeah, it, you always dictate a note, too, that says, at such and such a time, care turned over to Dr. X. Um, he, 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 uh, you know, he saw the patient. It's expected that this or that. But put something down there that shows that there was a reasonable transfer of responsibility and authority. And having done these cases for years, the second doc, the guy who discharges them, is the one who carries the heaviest load 
if this thing turns to crap. Absolutely. I think also that the same thing should be expected of the nurses. For years and years and years that the changes shift, you would see you know, seven or eight nurses around the chart rack talking about the patients. But the fact of the matter is, at least in California, each nurse only had a maximum of four patients. And you would think that the, the nurse who's going to take over those four patients would be talking to the nurse who's got those four patients, and they would go physically to the bedside and say, this is nurse so-and-so, she's going to be taking over your care. She knows, understands what's going to happen, or, those, or he understands it. The idea of doing this chart rack passing on so that one nurse gets to hear about every person in the department when in fact they're only responsible for four of them. It just, it, it, and it, it just takes up a lot of time. It's much of that time is wasted and it ought to be in front of the patients. And I think if you're an ER director, if you wanted to do one thing tomorrow that would make your patients happier, I would do change of shift in front of the patient. Yeah, I, I can't tell you how useless it is for the nurses to hear about every patient in the department. They know that. They're busy on their cell phones. Something else is going on. It's, it's not the way to do it. All right, 15. Now we are moving toward uh, getting patients out of the department. Ideally, indicate that the nurse's notes have been reviewed prior to discharge. If there's a note down there about how your patient is doing in the department, are they getting better? It's even better, by the way, if you have a discussion with that nurse prior to discharge, you can note that on the chart. But note something that you followed and, and kept track of the sojourn of the patient through the department. You could say, well, this is just defensive charting. But you know what? Most defensive charting is actually the best care for the patient. And I, and I genuinely believe that. If it's rare that a patient has an excellent chart and gets bad care. You know, one of the things that um, I've acknowledged in the beginning is that some of these things are harder to do than others. Uh, some of them are easy. This may be viewed as a pain in the butt, especially when you have these automated EMRs where you've got reams and reams of crap that the nurses have generated through all of these macros about uh, you know, every blood pressure is put down, every ounce of IV fluid is being put down, those kinds of things. And so it's hard to sift through that to find out the important information, the, uh, the, the subjective assessments that are down there. So I acknowledge that, that this is not one of the easier things to do, but you will regret it if, in fact, there's a problem. And we are talking about risk management where this nurse's note basically nails you because you didn't see it and they didn't communicate it. And that brings up another point, Greg. I think that if it's important enough for the nurse to put down in the chart, I think it's, it's, it's one of those things where they ought to cover their butts and say, Dr. So-and-so advised that the temperature is now 115. You know, that, is, <laughs> they, that note basically ought to go down there, basically covers their butt and makes it very clear that you were told. Right. I, I, I couldn't agree more. All right, Rick, you're up. Uh, 16, see the patient prior to discharge, give the diagnosis, the results of tests, send the results home in a sealed envelope for the follow-up doctor, the follow-up instructions, and specifically ask if they have any questions. Don't delegate the last chance, and this is from you, Greg, don't delegate yep. the last chance to get it, uh, get it right. I think it, I, I, you know, this is one of those things where every doctor is going to say, no way, I'm not going to do that. I discharged all of our patients. Frankly, um, there may be some paperwork that only the nurses can do or something like that. But I think 
The doctor should be the one, as you've said many times in the past, this is a show, and the end of the show basically is the big finale, and you need to do it, not the nurses. You've got to be in there and say, here's what we think is wrong. Here's what we're going to do for follow-up. Uh, um, if you're having any problems, please come back immediately. The nurse has a bunch of crappy papers that you need to sign, but if you have any questions, please feel free to ask me. And it is fair at that moment in time to ask the family, you know, here's, here's what I want you to do. Can you do it? Can you get the medicine? Can you get to Dr. So-and-so? The number of, of uh, assistances we have available is unbelievable. We have a group of retired guys who will drive you to your follow-up appointment. In fact, in the winter in Michigan, we got a four-wheel drive club that on bad snow days picks people up, uh, particularly for the elderly, and takes them to the doctor, waits and takes them home. I mean, we got things available, but you don't know you need it unless you have the courage to ask the question. Now, I think you have to do that subtly because there are people who still have pride. But uh, there's a lot we can do. Uh, I, I think there was somebody with pride in California once, Rick. Uh, at least I heard about <laughs> You know, uh, but <laughs> in, in that regard, I think that it is I think you can get yourself into serious trouble if you write a, a, a an antibiotic for a kid who actually really needs it, which is, you know, probably one tenth of the people you write antibiotics for. It may be a 20th. Right? Yes. But at midnight, you're giving a prescription for an antibiotic. There are no pharmacies open. And what do you expect these people to do in terms of the initiation of the therapy? The other thing is. I think it's fair that you need to kind of basically know what these drugs cost. If you're going to give a, a Z-Pak, that is not cheap. If you're going to give um, Tamiflu, Tamiflu costs $110. If you think that it's important that somebody had that, you need to know it's $110, and you need to know, are they going to be able to get this? Uh, if you think you need Tamiflu, you need a copy of Emergency Medicine Abstract. I, I was just using that as an example. Yes, I, yeah, yes, yeah, I'm I sure you were. Yeah, because the last time I saved anybody with Tammy, I can't think of when that happened. But it but, is $110. Uh, I went on to drugstore.com, and that stuff is really uh, pretty expensive. So I think that you have an obligation to ascertain whether the people can take the medica medications that you're prescribing and do the follow-up that you're prescribing. Where are we uh, here now? 17. Yes, sir. We only if have the, three to go. So those people are getting tired of this. Hang in there. Yeah. If the patient needs to be seen within 24 hours, make the phone call yourself to set up the doctor appointment. Because what's going to happen is they're going to call the doctor's office the next day and they're going to get shined on and given an appointment in a week or something like that. If you honestly think they need rapid reeval, the family doctor can do it or the internist can do it or the pediatrician can do it. Give them the courtesy of a phone call. I've never had one in 36 years who didn't say thanks. I'll get them in tomorrow or I'll make sure my office gets them right in. You are so that, right. <laughs> but, it, but it makes the trip so easy for those patients because then they're not being fighting on the phone. And believe me, some of the people at the offices, they don't have any skin in this game. They're just, right. they're just going through, filling out things. And uh, I've, listen, I've got terrible horror stories 
about uh, about patients who did not get the care uh, the needed or the recheck they needed, uh, and it was simply a screw up on simple stuff, blocking and tackling. Nobody had to understand the difference between differential and integral calculus to actually get them in and be seen. But the, the family functions, I think, as a kind of a unit, and the family needs to, to unit needs to be respected. So when you're talking about grandma, have the two family members who came with her there to see if they can actually carry out the plan. It's it's common courtesy is what it is. Right. So we this tape is this recording is intended to create the super ER doctor, the super ER doctor and I and you have to remember we work for three people. We work for the CEO, we work for the medical staff and we work for the patient. And the medical staff is really, really appreciative when you call and say, I got Mr. So-and-so here. Uh, I think they need to get seen tomorrow. Would you help me out here? Would you take a look at the patient? They are so appreciative of that call that um, it, it basically gathers you and your group points because you represent a group. You're not an individual doctor working alone. And one of the issues that we had in, uh, over the years is that doctors would occasionally be wild hares, and they would say, "What?" And I would say, "What the heck are you doing? Your behavior. If you were in your own private practice, you could do every, any ridiculous thing you want. But you are a member of this group, and you represent this group, and your actions and behaviors represent this group, and you need to." comport yourself in a way that makes this group look good. Amen. Eight. Yeah. <laughs> Hallelujah, um, brother. Yeah. Where are we uh, here? We're okay. on 18, which is, we started to get into this in 17, Rick. That's the family unit. I, I can't repeat this enough. If there's family in the waiting room, bring them back, bring them in. Don't tell the story twice. And just note on your chart, patient and mother, patient and wife, whoever it is informed. So you note the fact who heard the discussion. I can't tell you the number of times patients' families will say, we don't know, we weren't back there, we didn't hear what went on. And I, I could also tell you from my own personal experience, I got a lot of interesting information occasionally from family members uh, that changed my view of sending the patient home or, or, uh, or at least what the therapy was going to be or what the time interval for follow-up was going to be. I think families, if used correctly, can be your strongest ally. Although you have to be careful. There are some HIPAA issues here. And so when that um, urinary infection in the husband turns out there are, there are no such things as urinary infections in the husband. It's called GC is what it's called. And, uh, and so I would probably be a little reluctant to bring the wife in for that discussion right then and there. Or there may Rick, be some, some are similar circumstances. You always ask permission. Yes. But you know what? It's the, it's, it's the one in 10,000 who says, no, I don't want anybody back here. And, uh, you know, I've told that story before about uh, the guy who didn't want me to talk to his wife about his heart attack and he was going home. And uh, so I just walked him out to the waiting room and said right in front of him to his wife, I said, John, if you change your mind, come back. I vi violated no HIPAA law. And she turned me around and said, what do you mean if he changes his mind? 
<laughs> Do you think he stayed? Oh, oh my God. Of course he stayed. She'd have beaten the crap out of him. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, it was much worse, the wrath of taking her on at home, than to stay in the hospital. Oh, I don't have a machine that painful. And he <laughs> and he knows it. And uh, she, uh, they got to figure that out. All right, number 19. Well, you know, just let me uh, reemphasize the point that you made. The idea of asking permission is a really important thing. Not so much because of HIPAA. We don't really give a crap about that. The, but the idea is it's a courtesy to the patient. Can I talk to your, can I talk to your family about this? And, and, and acknowledges that they're not just a piece of dough in the bed, but they're a person who has the opportunity to say yes or no. And, and I would not take it necessarily for granted. So I think your advice about asking is a, is a perfectly reasonable thing to do and I think should be done. All right, let's move right. on here. Um, we're down 19. to 19. Oh, this is, you know, uh, this is my soapbox. It, you know, I always tell the patient. Well, I'll, I'll, get off, I'll get off of your soapbox then. You get up there and do oh, it. Oh, right, right. Well, actually, this is the one you're supposed to do. So you want to do yep. it or I'll do it. I don't care. Well, I'll start it and then you can finish up. All right. And that is always tell the patient to return immediately to the ED if there are any new or worsening symptoms. The last, the worst thing we can do is what's happened with all these damn discharge instructions where you list 84 different things. Nobody reads them. Just tell them if there's any change, if you're suddenly, we're just come straight back. Do not go to the Burger King. Do not call your grandmother. Just come back into the emergency department. It's just simpler that way. And on the, on the uh, discharge sheet where that's printed, I circle it. I do Say too. return here. Yeah, just say, look, here's the only instruction of importance. Absolutely. If you're worse, come back. Do we care when? No. If you're worse in an hour, come back. We're happy to see you back. Come on down. You know, the funny thing, too, is uh, we actually get paid when they come back in most cases. Uh, I, I don't disagree with that. And, well, you, uh, you know, we're in business. I, I, that's exactly right. And sometimes you see other staff roll their eyes and say, are you back? Weren't you just here, you know, yesterday kind of thing? It's not the yeah. w welcoming thing saying, I'm going to give you another chance to get this right. Um, but I think that the elements here, it, the idea here is to t make the patient take some responsibility. And I agree that this litany of, you know, head trauma instructions are probably the sine qua non of a nutty stuff. You know, <laughs> They're the worst. Check the pupils, you know. Yeah, sure. What is a pupil, doctor? By the time the pupils are unequal, you're decorticate for crying out loud. Yeah, and, you're fit for you're fit for <laughs> postal employment only. As we well, they're laying say. off a lot of those people, so I don't even know if you can get a yeah. job at the post office anymore. But there, the the two elements, there are three elements here. Come back immediately, immediately. This basically puts the burden on them. If they wait a day or two or three, well, that's not immediate. And number two, anything new, I don't care what it is. Or anything worse. I don't want to have to elaborate all of the things that could happen. I just anything new or anything worse, and come back immediately. This puts the entire burden on them uh, when you say those three words: new, worse, or and and, and immediate. The other thing is when you're speaking to patients at the time of discharge, the words ought to be simple, direct. Uh, use things they can understand. And I think instructions should be written and instructions given uh, orally at about the fourth to sixth grade level. Here's the rule. I think if that's a where fourth I, grade. 
That's where I operate normally, I think. Yeah, I understand that, Rick. That's why I'm speaking slowly to you right now. If a fourth grader couldn't understand it and carry out the instructions, it's probably not right. You know, if you ask people, what is inflammatory arthritis? You just ask the lay people. They have no idea what that is. Or we always use phrases that we don't know what it is. Well, I think you've got a viral syndrome. Say what? Explain that to me. Explain that to me. I always love the guy when one of the residents said, well, this is only a virus. And he looked at him and said, isn't AIDS only a virus, doctor? (laughs) Well, yeah. You know. And a lot of times, you know, we prefer to uh, use Latin whenever we can choose it over in English. Like you have otitis media kind of thing. How about middle ear infection? You got to put that diagnosis down. And, you know, on the aftercare instructions, obviously it should have what you think the diagnosis is. It should indicate what tests were done. Uh, frankly, we gave a copy of all of the tests to the patients in a sealed envelope so that the family doctor and follow-up could, could see it. The, um, we indicated what treatment in the emergency department we did, whether we gave them a tetanus shot or we took a, a C-spine x-ray or those kinds of things so that the family doctor, when they get that aftercare instruction, can basically jumpstart that return visit because they know what was done, what you thought was wrong. They, don't care, they could care less about your history and physical and that kind of stuff. Nobody, nobody cares about that. They just want to nope. know what was wrong and what did you do. You know, we not only put the uh, information in a sealed envelope, we put it in a mason jar on Funk and Wagnall's porch, as you remember Johnny Carson used to say. People are going to say, Johnny who? Yeah, I understand that. We're old, Rick. Um, uh, Last one. You've got it. Negative nurse's notes should not be allowed to be written after the patient has been discharged. Well, you know, sometimes... Nurses can be a rather um, militant. We we fortunately never had that kind of thing in our department. No, but a, a lot, you know, basically, you just want to be you don't want to be sabotaged by a nurse's note that you never had the opportunity to see because a lot of these nurses defer their charting, and I, and we we absolutely um, would not allow that. But I can tell you that many times there was a stack of charts, and the nurse would say, "I got to finish my notes." And uh, I'm not interested in that. God knows what the heck is going to be written after the fact. Yeah. Oh, no. I I think the worst thing is whenever anything negative is going to be written, and just tell them that up front, if you think you're going to write a negative nursing note, tell me now. Right. Don't let the patient out the door. If, If the patient's pain is not improved, I the only way I can act on that is if you tell me. And right. I, I think that that goes back to a previous comment that every negative nursing note should be followed by Dr. Henry informed, yeah. Dr. Bucata brought to bedside. Whatever it is, we, if we just can't take care of it if we don't know about it. And it makes us look stupid in the eyes of the jury. It looks like there is no system. You know, something that costs this much money, and it does cost a lot of money, ought to be pretty good. And the answer is, a lot of times it isn't. Greg, we are about an hour into this, thereabouts. So what do we have? We have two emails that we haven't addressed for a, a while now. And um, you had some cases. Uh, I think, honestly, we should probably do these two emails because they've been sitting for a bit, if that's okay with you. Yeah, the first I one, think we can do that. The first one's from Brian Romeus, who uh, is an L.A.-based Kaiser doctor. 
but he said that he was interested in what is required documentation, uh, especially with regards to medical decision-making. And to narrow it down, he was talking about, do I need to list every, every diagnosis that would be considered in a person who has chest pain? And I think there's two points of view on this. One of them, it may be the CMS point of view of what we expect and what billing companies want. But I think from a risk management point of view, you would be absolutely nuts to do that. Um, the reason being is that there's a wide variety of diagnoses that could be considered in a chest pain patient. So if, and I've seen some of these, you know, um, charts that are um, proprietary kind of thing where people pay a dollar fifty a chart from some big company in Texas kind of thing, and they have on there a checkout list of all the things that could be responsible for a person's chest pain. And the idea is uh, to check these things off, meaning that you consider them. And I think that that is dangerous business because the fact of the matter is is that you really have not excluded these things as an example what have you done to exclude the diagnosis of a pulmonary embolism have you done a wells uh criteria on these people have you done a d-dimer have you examined their legs have you done an ultrasound of their legs you have not excluded that diagnosis in in, in no shape way or form what i couldn't agree with you more rick the problem is this if you actually looked at Zachary Cope's book uh, of the pain in the abdomen, I believe there are 174 diseases. Now, the truth is, whenever someone comes in with a pain in the abdomen, th all those diseases may exist somewhere in your mind, but you and I come up with a working hypothesis, not a true differential diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And when you start listing these things, let's take chest pain. Did you rule out type 2 Borhov syndrome? Well, I mean, it's not that I don't know that it exists, but it exists in a very rare subset of patients, uh, and there are going to be very specific findings on x-ray. I, I mean, to go through and list all these things, because there's all, it's always the one you didn't list, isn't it? Right. And, and I think you can't do that in emergency medicine. First of all, you don't have the time. And, and uh, secondly, it, it's not a rational thought process. The other thing is, is that I did look up the CMS 1995 guidelines, which are the, apparently the easiest to use. And under the heading of medical decision-making, there are three elements that physicians um, need to be aware of. But I don't necessarily think you need to write the, each one of these down. As an example, there are th of the three the number of diagnostic possibilities. I don't think you need to put down 45 diagno potential diagnoses for chest pain. I think that it is inferred that if a person has chest pain, there's a lot of potential causes. The second thing is the amount of data to be considered. Well, if you've ordered a chest x-ray, an EKG, a D-dimer, uh, a CBC, and this, that, and other things, it's, it's obvious that there's a lot of data to, to put down. You don't have to say that there's a lot of data when, in fact, there is a lot of data. And lastly, the third is the risks and complexities associated with the diagnosis and treatment. So the, if to the extent that you put down some diagnosis like uh, acute coronary syndrome, I don't think it, you need to specifically say, well, this is a risky diagnosis and, you know, I got to be careful here kind of thing. And so my point of view is that a lot of this is reflected, obviously, in the content of the record. Well, the other, the other side of that is when you do start listing things, if you say, you know, possible PE, possible this, then you better be able to defend what you did <laughs> to rule it in or out. Exactly. I mean, I, I think if, 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 uh, 
if a uh, clot to the, uh, you know, they, they've had their leg operated on in the last three or four weeks and now they've got pain in their chest, uh, you know what? Uh, you better be looking toward ruling out that PE. But uh, to say you, you, every different uh, disease that you're going to rule out, if it's, you know, like at the 1,000th level, you can't do that kind of thing. It's a waste of time. Do, do you have a wine for us this month? Oh, do we have a wine? Uh, Rick, we are continuing our stroll along the California Central Coast. We're stopping at one of my favorite wineries, and that's Fess Parker. Is it Boone Farms? Uh, uh, no, it's not Boone's Boone. Farms. Uh, Fess Parker, you will all remember, was who, Rick? Uh, Daniel Davey Boone. Crockett. Oh, is it Daniel? Davey Crockett. Oh, okay. He wrong, did wrong both. Guy. He played... Uh, in the original Disney uh, series, the three-part uh, series on the, uh, the Adventures of Walt Disney, he played uh, uh, Davy Crockett. And, uh, you know, didn't you, you must have had a coonskin hat and all that kind we of stuff. We all did. Here. Yes, we did. We all did. Okay, and we have to admit it. Uh, but he went on and formed a winery, and this isn't the standard sort of joke winery. This is some of the best wine in California, and I, I just want to quote – for those of you who are wine snobs and think you have to spend a zillion bucks, Antonio uh, uh, Galani, who is a, one of my favorite writers on this subject, says, uh, Fess Parker uh, Winery is impressive. A number of the high-end wines are delicious, but I was most struck by the quality of several of the estate's entry-level offerings. These are some of the very finest wine values in the world. And he has a Fess Parker 2010 White Wine Parker Family Reserve. This is, by the way, this is in Santa Barbara County. Uh, and he rates it on 91. This stuff's 28 bucks a bottle. I would point out to you that a lot of the other wineries in that area at the 91 level, it's costing $80 a bottle and $60 a bottle. I think that's a fiction. If you can buy a great wine... For, for that much money. And remember, in two hours, it's urine anyway. Uh, get yourself a bottle of this white wine uh, Parker Family Reserve, 28 bucks, rated one of the best wine values in the world. Well, Greg, uh, you have just exceeded my threshold by about mm, $20. But, uh, you know, <laughs> some of us uh, are, are are more liberal in their spending of, of wines than others. I I, I see. Uh, listen, <laughs> I think that uh, I think that that's the issue. I think that uh, we're we're pretty much done. I think that these points, you know, hopefully they will not be viewed as um, unachievable that we talked about, and that they or will, preachy. Or, They're not preachy. Yeah. Well, they might have been preachy, but the fact of the matter is, is that I. I I personally endorse every one of these, and as an ER director, I think that you, your 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 your, your director will just kiss your freaking feet if you do this stuff routinely. Yeah, Rick and I would like real uh, feedback on this. By the way, if this is the way you like the issues, yes and no answers, we're happy to do it. And I want to know how many people actually went back, went through the list looked at the behaviors and talked about this at their department meetings because we promise you a hell of a lot of the lawsuits in emergency medicine are based on these points. Okay. So, Rick. This is it, Greg, signing off. I appreciate uh, your uh, getting on the line with me from uh, far away Michigan. Thanks very much. We'll talk with all of you next month. Bye for now. Bye-bye. 
Thank <laughs> you.